My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church, and we are in week two of a multi-year series in the book of Exodus. So if you open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 15. And before we jump into Exodus 1, I want to share with you five scenarios uh, where you're going to face impossibly difficult circumstances. Now, I want to be clear. um, These scenarios are going to go from easier to progressively more challenging. And the question for you in each of these scenarios is, what would you do? You ready? Number one. Some of you are like, no, I'm not ready, actually. That was not a great setup. All right. Number one. You're standing in front of a crowd of a thousand people giving a lecture The camera is on you. All of you is on the screen. And you realize your zipper might be down. Do you check and risk humiliation that you will be seen in front of thousands of people and it will be cut and replayed as a practical joke for the rest of your life? Or do you wait? And cross your fingers. What do you do? Welcome to my every week, Phyllis Church. (laughs) Number two. (laughs) Ladies, I'm so sorry for this one. You've (laughs) You've had an incredible evening with your wife at a networking event. You get into the car and you see her beautiful dress is accidentally tucked into her undergarments. She hasn't noticed. You then realize it's been like that all night long. Do you tell her? (laughs) Gentlemen, do you tell her? Nobody say a word. (laughs) Some of you are like, you better tell me. (laughs) The funny thing is, in this scenario, the dude realized it had been like that all night long but he didn't process it. (laughs) All right, number three. It's going to get now a little bit more serious. You're working for a company, and you uncover a major financial scandal. The company has a history of self-protection and retribution. If you expose it, you will likely be fired and ruined, especially socially. But if you hide it, you're culpable And possibly, if it's exposed, may find yourself dealing negatively with the law. What do you do? Let's let's amp it up. You suspect your 18-year-old son is dealing drugs. You have found a large stash of cash and drugs and have seen recent expensive purchases. If you call the police, he will likely go to jail or worse. But if you do not call the police, your gut tells you this thing is going to escalate. What do you do? You're a parent in China under their one-child policy, and you find out that you are pregnant with child number two. The government is mandating abortion, and they will take your child if they find out. Do you? Abort the child, or do you go into hiding with the child? What do you do? So, 
when you get to the end of your life, you will probably be able to look at one or maybe two scenarios that are impossibly difficult. They're lose-lose. In fact, uh, there are many of you in this room. I know you. I know your story. And you have made impossibly difficult choices. You go down one path, you lose. You go down another path, and you lose. Now, here's the deal. You know the right thing to do. The right thing to do is not a question. Here's the question. What or who do you fear the most? Because what you fear the most is going to determine how you answer the question. Now, this morning, Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, what we're going to do is we're going to meet to date the most evil man in all of the Bible. Uh, We've seen Satan. He's obviously evil, but he's not a man. We saw Cain. He's evil, um, but he's not the worst. And so today, we're going to meet Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he will be, hands down, so far, the worst person in the Bible. But we're also going to meet five women. And these five women are going to be put in impossible circumstances where they're going to have to choose between their life or the life of someone else's. And one of the things I'm very excited for you to see is the incredible response of each one of these women. In fact, uh, in scripture, there's not too many places where women are highlighted. There's a lot of amazing women, but there are a lot more men. This is like one chapter where five incredible women make incredible decisions, and there's a lot on the line with each one of these decisions. They're going to be forced with, do I preserve myself and kill a baby or multiple Or do I hide and lie and potentially sacrifice everybody's lives? All right, Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, I want to show you the first costly decision that some of these women are going to have to make. It is this. Do I kill multiple babies and live or defy the law and risk my life? This is the decision that the Hebrew midwives are going to be put in a position to make. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shipra and the other was named Puah, and these women are going to become Jewish national heroes in this story. Verse 16, here's what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, says to them, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall Live. So what is mandated here is nothing short of mass genocide. Uh, it's particularly sinister because it's not just authorities to slaves in a different people group. Uh, this is a mandate for Hebrews to turn on Hebrews, for family to turn on family. Um, if this happens, this begins to unravel the entire fabric of their culture of unity, of trust, trust of camaraderie. And so Pharaoh's actually pretty smart. Even though he's mandating this, he's doing this at the hands of these midwives, and in process is turning the entire nation in on themselves. And what could possibly motivate one man to sanction such atrocity? The answer is fear. Go back a couple verses if you have your Bibles open. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. Come, he says, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they fight against us and escape from the land. What if, what if, what if, what if fear is motivating Pharaoh? Look at verse 12. But the more they, the Israelites, were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And and listen to the Egyptians' response. And the Egyptians were in, what's the word? Dread. Dread of the people. 
All right, so in Exodus 1, we find Pharaoh. And this is a man consumed by fear. Now, there are two kinds of fear. Uh, The first kind of fear is what we call sinful fear. Uh, Sinful fear is fear that turns against people. Now, there are a few symptoms of sinful fears that you can know. Uh, Sinful fear is creeping up in your life when at least one of these three things happens. Number one, sinful fear dispels love. The New Testament says that love casts out fear. You know that? Fear, sinful fear specifically, casts out love. So that when you are afraid of someone, you lose progressively the greater the fear, your ability to actually love that person. And so if you find yourselves in a sinfully fearful position, your ability to love diminishes. Symptom number two, sinful fear dispels truth. Let's just be honest. Are you at your most logical and clear-headed when you are afraid and petrified? Everybody, the answer is no. In fact, you are irrational and you are illogical. Fear is a liar. Fear doesn't tell you the truth. Fear is not on your side. And so you watch people make some of the most insane decisions of their life. And for many people, it is fear that's motivating those decisions. It dispels truth. Symptom number three, sinful fear requires a foe. When you have sinful fear... It cannot exist unless there's an enemy. Let me give you a practical illustration of this. If you're afraid of heights, what specifically is the foe or the enemy? Heights, right? When you're afraid of a person, what becomes or who becomes the enemy? That person doesn't. You posture yourself as the good guy and they're the bad guy. Every time you have or I find sinful fear, I always find an enemy somewhere. People don't even realize they do it. But it is necessary when you live in sinful fear of someone that there will be an enemy. So Village Church, I want to just encourage you for a moment. Be very, very careful. You and I are profoundly dangerous when we're afraid. But there's a better fear. Look at verse 17. I love this. It says, but the midwives, what? Feared God. And they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So this is called godly fear. Godly fear is different. This is fear that turns toward people in love. And there are a few symptoms. You know you're living in godly fear when the following things happen. Number one, godly fear fosters love. It intuitively understands in in a, in a relationship where there's authority, when the authority is for you, whether it's discipline or just mandates, when you believe they're for you, uh, what it does is it fosters love. Not all fear is bad. My kids are afraid of me, and that is not bad. It is a good fear. It is a healthy fear. It's a righteous fear. It's a godly fear. Here's the second symptom, number two. Godly fear receives truth. When truth is given to you from authority... In a healthy situation, you're able to receive it because you believe it's for your good. You believe they love you. And so though you're in a relationship of authority and we'll call it biblical fear, it's a good fear. It's a godly fear. It's a healthy thing. And so you know you're not in sinful fear because when the authority actually comes to you and gives you feedback, you're able to receive it. Or when they give you encouragement, your heart doesn't push it away. You actually internalize it and you embrace it and you own it and you believe it. But number three, godly fear requires a healthy relationship. Let me say it this way. My children are afraid of me. And I like it that way. (laughs) But I'm not their enemy. In fact, I am their favorite dad in the whole wide world. And they are my beloved children. 
and yet they're afraid of me. This is what good, godly fear does. It fosters healthy relationships. It amplifies love. It receives and it welcomes feedback. It's an incredibly beautiful thing. So what should, on on a human level, if you're the midwives, what should they have been afraid of? Well, number one, we'll just say Pharaoh, because everybody else on the planet was petrified of Pharaoh. They should be afraid of losing their lives, losing their family, torture, punishment. But what did these midwives fear at the end of the day? God. God. And if they had succumbed to their fear of Pharaoh, let me tell you this, on their conscience would be the murder of hundreds or thousands or more of little babies. Their lives would be disastrously different from that, from that day forward. So, Village Church, uh, let me say it this way. The course of your life is set by that which you fear the most. The course of your life is set by that which you fear the most. Look at verse 18. So the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, called the midwives, and he says to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. Okay, what emotion would you assign to Pharaoh in this moment? Anger, rage, like in my brain, he's not like, hey, ladies, can we just talk? I want to make sure you're cool. Like, how are you feeling about all this? I know it's like a hard mandate, but are you feeling really like, does this help you? I just want to get feedback, right? That's not what's happening right here. Pharaoh is angry. Pharaoh is calling them to an account for breaking his word, which is law, because in their minds, he is God. Now, if you were the Hebrew women, what emotion would you be feeling as you stand before Pharaoh and he challenges your behavior? Fear. My heart would be racing. I'd sweat through my armpits. Like, I would be really nervous. My voice would be quivering. Like, this would be me at my worst. Now, my kids, all of them have, like, one major fear— Uh, One thing that kind of just like debilitates them. Uh, For one of my kids, it is the dentist. And understandably so. Like parents, have you ever taken your kids to the dentist? And the dentist is kind of just a mean person, doesn't have any patience. And you're like, it's a child. Like, come on. So one of my kids had a really negative experience with the dentist. And so to this day, the dentist is their greatest worst enemy on the planet. And if you ask them, who's your worst enemy? They would tell you, the dentist. Like they're very aware of this. So one time, uh, a while ago, uh, we got done with the dentist, and we got in the car, and they had just kind of like sucked it up, and they did it, but internally they were dying a slow, painful death, and we get in the car, and breaks out just into tears. And this is, this is what, what they said to me, and it was so, I was so appreciative of how in tune they were with what they were feeling, and then the shame that came with this. They said, Dad, what's wrong with me that I feel like this? Now, I know my response because I've actually said the very same thing to many of you in this room, and I've I've had to preach the same sermon to my heart. Because there's something about fear that when you're in the middle of it, it debilitates you, it cripples you, it leaves you vulnerable, it makes you do things physically that are actually pretty embarrassing. And then you wonder, like, what is wrong with me? And in that moment, I looked at my daughter and I said, you can't always control what you feel. You can only control what you do with what you feel. I'm not going to look at my daughter and say, because you have some resident PTSD from when you were a child, from a dentist who was a jerk to you, that when you're in the same circumstance and all of the physical emotions arise, you will get no shame from me or from God in that moment. My concern is not what is happening to your body. It is not with the embarrassment that you have. It's not with the tears that you're crying. 
My concern is what do you do next? Because just because your body fears a man or a woman does not mean that your decisions have to act in fear of that man or that woman. I would bet you a billion dollars, I don't have it so I can make the bet safely, that if you brought those midwives up and said, tell us the emotions you felt when you stood before Pharaoh, they would say, we were petrified. But that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about fear. It is talking about what you do. It is talking about who you ultimately submit to. Look at verse 19. The midwives, they said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Okay, true or false? (laughs) Here's the question. Did the midwives lie? The answer is they lied, lied, lied. Okay, now, Maybe we can find like some plausible scenario where this was an accurate statement. Here's probably what happened. Um, Everybody knew about the mandate from the midwives. So when they went into labor, they didn't call them. And by the time the midwives got there, they already had the babies. And so maybe this is a legitimate excuse. Hey, they all just kind of gave birth before we got there. But let's be really clear. If your children tell you a story with factual information, with the intention of misleading and deceiving you, are they lying to you? Yes. Did the midwives lie? They most certainly did. Now you can disagree. Have at it in your community groups. Duke it out. Fight and let me know what you guys decide. Now here's my question. What did God think of their behavior? Look at verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and they grew very strong. Verse 21. And because the midwives, what is it? Feared God. He gave them families. What a gracious, unbelievable gift to these women because they spared the lives of so many families. God gave them the gift of having their own family. But things are about to go from bad to very worse. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. This isn't just his generals. This isn't just like officers of the law. Pharaoh is enlisting the entire nation of Egypt to do the following. Here's the mandate. Here's the edict. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Costly decision number two. Kill your child and live or protect him and risk both of your lives. This was the decision that Moses' mom is now going to have to make. Look at chapter two, verse one. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. We learn from chapter 6, this is Moses' mom and dad, Amram and Jochebed. Jochebed is his mother, and she's going to take center stage here. Verse 2, the woman conceived, and she bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Uh, The word fine, the New Testament translates it as beautiful, but uh, it's this idea, not just that the son was good looking. I mean, like every mother in the world thinks, oh, my baby's so beautiful. Uh, In fact, there's some early uh, Jewish literature that says that it's part of the Jewish tradition that God told a Jochebed that this child was going to be special or beautiful, that this was some kind of special prophetic word over the baby's life. Now, we don't actually know that, but here's what we know. Whether it was from a word of God or just in her gut, Jochebed, the mother, knew this baby was special. And so she had a decision to make. Am I going to kill my child or am I going to hide him and risk everybody's life? She's got two other kids, by the way. Miriam is the oldest sister of Moses and Aaron is the brother who is just older than him. 
Look at the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. I'll put it on the screen for you. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. By the way, it's not Moses' faith. Whose faith is it? It's his parents. Because they saw the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Go back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, now she comes in, this is Miriam, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, why put your child in the river? Because guess who bathes in the river? Pharaoh's daughter, the princess. This is strategic. Now, do you have any confidence that Pharaoh's daughter is going to go against the national edict of her father? The answer is no. But she's taking her best shot here. And so she somehow manages the courage and the faith to put this kid in the water. And just imagine how long it takes to get this basket and to, to put oil and pitch in it and then to get it all ready, right? This is a process. This isn't a quick thing. Like she's thinking about this and she's probably praying over this child. God, I trust you. He's going to get caught. The Egyptians are going to see him. They're going to kill him. I don't have anything left. I'm going to bank this child's future on the compassion of this woman. And so she sets up this scenario and she puts him in the water and we get to costly decision number three. Legally kill an enemy child or protect him and risk both of your lives. This was the decision, the decision that Pharaoh's servant girl is going to have to make. Chapter two, verse five. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it when she opened it. She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this, this is one of the Hebrew children. How do they know? Circumcision. J. Vernon McGee is a pastor and speaker, long since passed away, um, but I loved what he wrote on this section. He said, at that very moment was the right time for the child to cry. I don't know if I agree with this, but I like this part. In fact, the Lord pinched little Moses and he let out a yelp. (laughs) And God brought together two things that he has made. A baby's cry and a woman's heart. And Pharaoh's daughter just could not pass this little baby by. What was she afraid of? She's a pagan. She didn't love God. She worshiped idols. She didn't have probably vocabulary, but God put inside of her a motherly instinct and a conscience. You you don't have to be a Christian to know the right thing to do. And to know that if you do this, you sear and violate your conscience in a way that you can't undo very well. And so God even uses this conscience, this maternal instinct. I call it a mom instinct that's inside of every woman. Just don't go against it. It's powerful and it's real. And he uses this to preserve this baby. We get to costly decision number four. Now someone else is going to be put in the same position, legally kill an enemy child or protect him and risk both of your lives. Pharaoh's daughter, the princess is now going to be forced to make a decision. Verse seven says this. Then his sister, that's Miriam. She says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Can we just think about how creepy this is? You're bathing. (laughs) And you're like, there's a baby. 
servant, go get it. Oh, it's a Hebrew. Hey, everybody, I know somebody. Like, wait, I'm sorry, why are you in the reeds? This is super strange. You can't think that too far about it, but that's kind of what happened. Now, here's my question for Pharaoh's daughter. Why did she not immediately drown the baby and follow her father's edict? Because God put something profound inside of this woman, a mother's instinct and a conscience. And so Pharaoh's daughter is putting a lot at risk to defy God, her father, in her worldview. Now, Pharaoh's daughter probably couldn't name what she feared, but her fear determined her next steps. Verse 8 says, Pharaoh's daughter said to Miriam, go. So the girl, Miriam, his older sister, it's funny, Moses is writing this, went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, said to her, the daughter's mother, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman, Jochebed, took the child, Moses, and nursed him. Okay, ladies, how, how many of you would love to be paid by the government to raise your children? Isn't this cool? The very government that is mandating this child's death is paying for him to be cared for. Like, this is pretty epic. And uh, Jacobin's got to be like, God, you're amazing. And, and probably, let's time frame this. It might not have been more than five or ten minutes from the moment she put her precious baby in the water to this chain of events. It could have been a half hour. It could have been an hour. But not long after this mother, in faith, feared God more than Pharaoh, did God come around and show her, you, you have to fear me only. In me is life. In me is preservation. In me is human flourishing. You cannot live with the death of your child and your soul for the rest of your life. Don't do it. It brings us to this wonderful theological word called providence. Very simply, providence is God orchestrating natural events for supernatural purposes. And you find these very normal everyday events in your life, and some of them are just terrible, and some of them are neutral, and some of them are great. But here's what you find. God is taking natural, normal events, and he is orchestrating them for supernatural purposes. So particularly, if you're, when you're in this once-in-a-lifetime or twice-in-a-lifetime lose-lose circumstance, here's the question you're going to have to answer. Do I believe that God is always up to something no matter how bleak it appears? Do I believe in the providence of a good God who is orchestrating these natural events and bringing them supernaturally together for the good of humanity and for the glory of God? Costly decision number five. Give away your child or protect him and risk both of your lives. Moses' mother, Jochebed, is going to be in another impossible circumstance. Verse 10 says, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. All right, ladies, Christian moms, how many of you want to give your child over to a pagan woman to be raised in a pagan temple, to be raised in pagan practices, to be given pagan ideology and pagan philosophy and pagan theology? Any of you excited about this? I mean, Jacobet's plight is unconscionable to me. And she's in this position where if I don't give the baby back, then my life is going to be at risk. If I run with him, they're going to find us. You can't hide a kid for that long. And so she's in this impossible circumstance. And she's facing a question. Who do I fear more? Pharaoh who hates me or my providential sovereign God who loves me and cares for me? I guarantee you this, if Jochebed could sit right here and she could share with you her story, she would tell you 
Ladies, I don't care how bleak the situation is. Trust God. Fear him. Do not sever your conscience. Trust him. And when this is all said and done and you get to heaven and you look back and how all this panned itself out, you are going to see the good providential hand of God taking natural circumstances and bringing supernatural good from them. Don't lean into the flesh. Don't let the fear of man control you. Fear God. You know what the right thing to do is. Do that thing. Costly decision number six. Secretly hide a foreign enemy or protect him and risk both of your lives. Pharaoh's daughter is now having to make another impossibly difficult decision. Uh, Verse 10 goes on. It says, and he, Moses, became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of water. And the name is, it's it's not just reflective of what happened. It's very prophetic because Moses is going to be used from God to draw the Israelites out out of the land of Egypt. And so the name is almost prophetic in this really amazing sense here. But she's got to make this decision. I'm going to raise an enemy child under the very nose of my father. He's going to be trained. He'll be called a prince. He'll be given authority. He'll be given jurisdiction. He'll be given leadership. He'll be given the best training. And he'll be given Pharaoh's name. All of this is one big deception act underneath the very nose of Pharaoh. So let's, let's just take a step back. What so far has sinful fear produced? Let me make a, I made a little list. Racism, atrocity, murder, genocide, deception, and division. Any of you want that, by the way? No one? I didn't think so. Here's what godly fear has produced thus far. Life, a clear conscience, the reunion of a mother and her baby, inspiring faith, space for God to show up, and tons and tons of glory given to God. So what? I have three so what's for you. Number one, put fear in its place. Is fear a good thing or a bad thing? It's it's an is thing. It becomes good or bad based on what you do with it. Fear, no matter how you slice it, is a very powerful, powerful thing. Rightly placed fear is more powerful than you can imagine. This is interesting because they feared God. These women who had no power, the most powerful one maybe, maybe would have been Pharaoh's daughter, but by and large, even women in this culture did not have power. Uh, Jochebed did not have power. The midwives did not have power. The servant girl of the princess didn't have power. And because they feared God, they undid slowly this entire Pharaoh and the regimes after him. But God is able to do way, way, way more with your faith in him than he is with you taking things into your own hands. Always fear God. And then step back and watch God do unbelievable things. Now, will the unbelievable things happen in your time frame? Everybody, the answer is no. Will they happen in the way you expect them? The answer is no. Play the long game with God. Trust him. This thing will pan out well for you. Number two, when God appears to be nowhere, convince your heart to trust him. My heart, my heart thinks and feels all these weird things. If I am moved by my heart, I'm not a great person. And God has given me the ability by his spirit for my mind to actually tell my body what to do. My heart doesn't need to drive the course of my life. And so when your heart feels fear, that is normal, that it's human, that is real. There is no shame or condemnation for that. But your heart doesn't control your life. You make decisions to fear God, and that is what controls your life. You have to counsel yourself. Convince your heart to trust him. Going against what your heart wants is one of the most difficult human decisions to make. 
Fear is a liar. My heart has proven itself to be pretty unreliable and untrustworthy. But God's word, God's will is always better. Godly fear will always, always be for my health and for my life and my flourishing. And sometimes I just got to learn to counsel my heart and say, I know what you're saying, but God's word tells me that you're a liar today. And so I'm going to go with what God's word and what God's will says. Number three, your costly decision has probably been orchestrated by God for a bigger reason. I don't, I don't know what your costly decision is. Again, I know a lot of you, and you have been in terrible, unthinkable circumstances I would never wish on anybody. And I do know this, that many of you in the moment had no clear line of sight to what God was up to. As time has gone on, you've been able to see the providence of God take these natural events and bring about supernatural good from them. You're playing the long game, right? You're seeing that. Some of you, you're in the middle of it. I know the decision you made. I know that it was excruciating. I know that. And you haven't seen providence play itself out yet. I promise you this. You give God enough time. You will watch him work all things for good. You're good right now? That's not what he says. Good, which will ultimately be for your joy. I do know that most of you, if you have not experienced this once-in-a-lifetime lose-lose, what do I do? I know what's right, but the cost is too big. Decision, I know that your day is coming for almost all of you. And it's going to feel impossible. And I want to tell you, fear God. In him is life and flourishing and joy. You might get a little ease if you fear the world or you fear the consequences or you fear man or you fear woman, but it's never worth it. And so this is one of those sermons for some of you, you got to put in your pocket and you got to remember these women because when the day comes up, you're going to be reminded of the midwives. You're going to be reminded of Jochebed and you're going to put your faith and your trust in God and say, I don't know the outcome of this. It's not safe or easy, but I trust you. In Psalm 22, there's a very familiar phrase and Psalm 22 starts off with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pop quiz. Who said that on the cross? It's church. The answer is Jesus. And if you're a Roman soldier and you're just like watching Jesus on the cross and you've heard all about his big statements and uh, implying or explicitly or implicitly that he's God and he can forgive sins and he's called by God, chosen by God, all these other things. And then you look at this man beaten to a pulp and weak on the cross And he shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a pagan Roman who doesn't know the word of God and has not memorized Psalm 22, your thought is this, that man gave up. And here's the reality. The disciples around him, they gave up. They look at this impossible circumstance and they think to themselves, how could any good come from this thing? But if you were listening and you paid attention to the text that Jesus was quoting, It's loaded and it's beautiful. And I want you to hear the rest of it. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And if you stop there, you'd be like, yeah, I get why Jesus quoted that. He's about to be killed. He's giving up. Uh, The Psalms give him vocabulary for grief. And so he's using this vocabulary, but it doesn't stop there. Here's what verses three, four, and five say. Yet you are holy, 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Even though Jesus just says the first words, he's actually making a greater statement. On the surface, this looks as if I'm abandoned and forsaken, but providence is just starting to act. He goes on in verse five. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and they were not put to shame. And all I can say is Jesus, he knew the outcome, right? I mean, was Jesus fully well aware that three days later he's going to be raised from the dead? Absolutely. His disciples, even though they heard it, their hearts just couldn't fathom it. They couldn't put it all together. And Jesus just gives them this psalm. All he has to do is say the first words because the rest of it they've memorized and it's implied. Yes, it feels like in this moment you have forsaken and abandoned me and forgotten me. But that's not how the psalm ends. The psalmist looks back to all the acts of God in history and says, but you always showed up and redeemed and delivered. The implication is, of course, it wasn't in anybody's time frame, but you always did the right thing. You always came through. You always proved yourself to be a promise keeper. You always proved yourself to be reliable and trustworthy. And so as we come to the communion table here, we're just reminded. We're reminded of how bleak things can appear, but we're reminded that God and his providence is always taking the natural events of this world and bringing them up for good purposes. As we partake of communion, as we remember, as we reflect, some of you in your brain, you've been battling with God because you feel forgotten and you feel neglected. And the cross is this great reminder that yes, feeling forgotten is normal and real and all the emotions are very understandable. Jesus, in the night before he was betrayed, he, he, he wept and he prayed and he said to God, if it is your will, could you take this cup from me? Because it's filling me with anxiety and with stress. Like, is all of that normal and human? Yes, but we make the decision to fear God and to trust him and to do the next right thing. That's what we do. And so the elements are going to pass in a few minutes, and this is an opportunity for us to remember our God's faithfulness. He is faithful to always show up, and most importantly, he has been faithful to fulfill his promises to give us a savior for our sin. God has never, ever failed one single promise of his. And so here's how we do communion. Uh, If you are visiting with us from a different church, we welcome you. Uh, It does not matter to us what church you go to. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead, if you believe he's coming back, if you believe salvation is not for good people or righteous people, but forgiven people who've placed their faith in Jesus who was good for them, if you believe that, I don't care where you go to church, we are one body in Jesus Christ. Some of you are here, you've been dragged with family and friends, you're visiting, you're searching, and you really don't actually know what to do with communion. Let me make it very easy for you. If you've never trusted in Jesus personally, uh, our ask is that when the elements pass by, you don't partake. The reason we say this is pretty simple. Because the Bible says that when we partake of communion, we're making a a declaration. We're making a proclamation that I, I personally believe I'm a sinner I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that God raised him from the dead. I believe salvation is by grace through faith. And I personally have trusted in Jesus as my God and my Savior. That's a big declaration. I mean, literally, when you're taking this cup and this juice, partaking is making that kind of declaration. And if you're not there, honestly, we're just so glad you're here. Nobody will look down on you. Nobody will judge. In fact, nobody will probably even notice if you don't partake of communion. But... You might be in a position today where you have never believed before, but today you believe. You may not even know why you believe, but you're like, I, I believe in Jesus Christ. 
And if today's a day where you want to place your faith in Jesus, I want to give you an encouragement. These elements are going to pass by. Take them. And let this be the first declaration and proclamation that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he is your God and you need salvation through him. Let it be your first declaration that good works don't save people, but the good works of Jesus Christ on the cross is how we're saved. Let this be that declaration. So we're going to have a time of silence. It's an opportunity for you to talk to God, to pray. Um, I'm going to to pray that we're going to worship together. And as we're worshiping together, the elements are going to be handed out. Would you hold on to them until the end of the song? We're going to partake together at the end of the song as a symbol of our unity in Jesus Christ. Let's have some time alone with God.